There are some scriptures that I can't tell the liturgist they're going to read until they sign up to be the liturgist. Uh, this is one of those. Thank you, Anne. You did a marvelous job. Uh, yeah, let's, let's go ahead and... That I, I can tell you that is not a, a scripture anyone wants to get to say, here's the reading, 17 verses of names that you've never encountered before. Um, we appreciate it. And there is so much depth there for us this morning. Friends, let us begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So I am willing to bet that almost no one, perhaps absolutely no one, if asked to tell the story of Jesus today, to someone who has never heard it before, would begin like the Gospel of Matthew does. I mean, the other Gospels make much more sense in the way that they choose to start the story. Luke begins with Jesus' birth, and he hides the genealogy for a couple of chapters. I mean, he includes it, but after you're already hooked and you can skim a little bit to keep moving on. Now, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, picks up the story from the moment when Jesus, as an adult, begins his ministry. John starts poetic, this theological reflection about how Jesus shows us who God is, how Jesus is light and the Word, and it's beautiful. These are three reasonable introductions to the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But to begin with a family tree makes very little sense. It is at once a surprising and an audacious choice. A record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ is how we heard the gospel started. A more literal translation of the text here actually might read the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. The very first line of the first page of the whole New Testament begins with a reference back to the Old Testament, with a Genesis, almost as if Matthew was taking the thread of 2,000 plus years of history and folding it back on itself so that this moment was now brushing up against the very first days of creation. It was a new beginning right in the middle. Now, Jesus' story doesn't come out of nowhere. No story ever does. Every beginning comes with the ending, if not the transformation, of something else. And so this is a completely new beginning, separated out into a whole New Testament to show that something brand new is happening, and yet even so, this brand new beginning is built out of the old. Matthew is reaching backward to tell Jesus' story in a very particular way from the start, because this isn't just a genealogy. It's the start to the story. It is the story being told already, and what story is it? that Matthew is telling. In one sense, it's about Jesus' credentials, that he can, in fact, be the Messiah and the culmination of all of Jewish history and tradition because he is from the house of David and he is a child of Abraham. Matthew describes Jesus there in that first verse, saying that he is son of David, son of Abraham. And then he proves it by tracing the genealogical thread from Abraham through David to Jesus. Done. Jesus is allowed to be the Messiah. And it's grouped incredibly neatly into three sets of 14 generations. 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile. 14 from the exile now to Jesus himself. It's all very neatly portrayed, tied up. It feels complete 
as Matthew presents it. So perfectly ordered as to be divinely ordained, Jesus came in the fullness of time, himself perfectly situated within the family tree of faith to offer a new beginning. This is part of the story, but there's more to it, as Matthew tells us. The genealogy laid, for, laid out for us here is as much a product of editorial choice as for history. As best we understand it, Matthew's audience expected an ancient genealogy to be accurate for about three generations or so back into the past and no further. So as much as this might pain anyone who's really into genealogy here today, accurately naming every ancestor was not the purpose of a genealogy in this time. It was a literary tool and not a historical convention. In fact, if you were to read this genealogy with one finger in Matthew's gospel and the other in the book of Chronicles, we would quickly see that Matthew's accounting of Jesus' family made some choices about who to include and who to leave out, about who to work into Jesus' ancestral thread and who to work around. This is to be expected. It's what they did with genealogies. What is strange is that Matthew would make all of these choices about who to leave out and who to put in and that he would bring in some of Scripture's most difficult characters when he could have just sidestepped them altogether. He could have given Jesus a perfect, unblemished ancestral history, but instead he puts in people that are surprising, and in more than a few instances, he calls attention to them. There's a pattern to a genealogy in Scripture, a cadence. It's what makes it so mind-numbingly monotonous to read ancient genealogies and chronicles and in numbers. The father beget the son. The son beget the grandson. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And on and on and on through all the generations until all but the most dedicated listeners are daydreaming or fast asleep. But at four instances along the way, Matthew breaks the cadence and the surprise is meant to catch our attention. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, Matthew writes, following the pattern, but then he breaks it and says, whose mother was Tamar. In four separate instances, Matthew introduces women to the genealogy when they wouldn't have traditionally been included. They just didn't put women in genealogies. And Matthew included these women, whose stories were reminders of the times when God's people failed to live according to God's ways. See, Matthew could have included other women. Matthew could have reminded us of the mothers of the faith, the wives of the patriarchs, of Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah. While their stories are hardly perfect, they are the conventionally faithful ones, the women who are representative of Israel's long historical tradition. But Matthew pulls the names of four women who came into the story from outside of the faith, who were grafted into the Israelite tree by circumstance and coincidence, whose very presence in the pages of the Old Testament is a reminder of the correction and the redirection that God brings in from outside of the family. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. See, Tamar's first husband was a son of Judah, and when he died, convention required that she be married to another from the family so that Tamar wouldn't become a widow in a time and a culture when women weren't allowed the means to support themselves. But eventually, Judah refused, refused to give Tamar what she needed to make a living 
And so Tamar had to insist, had to stand up and demand to be seen until eventually Judah relented and admitted, she is more righteous than I. Tamar comes into the story to teach us to look for the widowed and the orphaned, to care for the abandoned and the oppressed. And there's Salmon, who is the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute and a resident in a city that the Israelites wanted to conquer, Jericho. Yet it was Rahab who sheltered the Israelite spies and Rahab who became the crux of the Israelite victory. And she would be saved from the destruction of her city and live among the people of God for the rest of her life. And so Rahab comes into the story to teach us not to dismiss any of God's children, but to see and love them as God loves them. Then there's Boaz, who is the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth's first husband died tragically in a famine, but Ruth refused to leave her mother-in-law, Naomi, even when it meant traveling to Israel, Naomi's homeland, but a foreign country to Ruth. And so Ruth threw herself upon the kindness of an upstanding man in that country, expected him to remember Scripture's command to care for the stranger among them, for the foreigner in a foreign land, and he did. And so Ruth stretched the boundary of family far past blood ties and came into the story to teach us that our family is the family of God. And Ruth was the mother of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. David was the king. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. Here, the woman that we know as Bathsheba is hidden. She's named as the woman who was, had been, the wife of Uriah. Because in this instance, it's Uriah who is the outsider. It was Uriah who adopted Israel from another country in a different lineage. Uriah whose faithfulness to his wife and to his king, to Israel and Israel's armies, meant that David could not use him to cover up his infidelity and so had him murdered instead. And so it is Bathsheba and her husband Uriah that come into the story to teach us the awful corrupting forces of power and greed and the devastating havoc they can wreak upon a family and a nation. It is four women, each a model of faithfulness, in a moment when those who thought themselves God's faithful ones needed a reminder about what that looked like. Four women who didn't need to be included in Jesus' genealogy by convention, but absolutely had to be in there to tell the story right, to proclaim how God writes our story with crooked lines, sometimes pointing all askew and in need of that correction and redirection. Four women whose legacies are wrapped up in Jesus' story as he comes to renew and restore, to open the stiff doors of our hearts and point us back at the one who sent him. Four women from far outside the faith and the family who were swept into the forever growing kingdom of God. There's a bit of a silence then as the genealogy continues. When the exile leads to the string of barely recognizable names, when the family seems static until Jesus arrives. He is born to faithful Jewish parents, Mary and Joseph. But there are still more outsiders to come. Just a few verses later, when no one knows about the birth of the Christ child, but these two poor parents in a quiet town on the outskirts of Israel, then Matthew will tell the story of Magi, whose faith seems to rest in watching the skies and letting the stars speak to them. 
magi who know about Jesus and his importance before anyone else in Bethlehem, who arrive asking about this newborn king, only discover that Herod and all his wisest priests and legal experts had no idea that anything of any importance had happened. Jesus will tell us later that the first are last and the last are first. It's a theme threaded throughout the whole book of Matthew, beginning here with a few foreign magi and four women on the outside of faith with a whole lot to teach us. It is a story of redemption that does not leave us prideful in our faith or confident in our assurances, but humbled by God's good grace to welcome and include even us. God can work in and through anyone. God writes the story of salvation with crooked lines. And as we begin this new year, we have the opportunity to consider how God might be drawing us in from the outside, or how we, firmly planted in churches and families on the inside, might still have something to learn. A number of years ago, I was given a card with a prayer on it, titled the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer. This would have been back when I was a student at TCU. It's a small school. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, Fort Worth, Texas, a few thousand students. Their mascot's the Horned Frog. Um, their colors are purple and white. A, a pretty decent football team. Anyway, I was still a student at TCU. I was given this prayer at a conference of some sort, told that it was a waterproof card so that it could be hung in a shower, prayed with the start of every day as the cleansing waters washed over us, the reminder of our baptism. This is the prayer that we'll find later in the service that's in the bulletin. And I don't think it's overstating things to say that this prayer changed my life in a whole lot of ways. I prayed it almost every day that year. I had never heard it before, and I stumbled over language frequently until I had it pretty much memorized. I'm no longer my own, but thine, it starts. And it's traditional in Methodist history to return to this prayer at the start of a new year, an opportunity to make or renew a covenant which commits our whole selves to God and receives God's commitment to us. It makes no promises, but opens us to the spectrum of what could be in the course of God's service. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee, it prays, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. It's a humble prayer, I think, if ever there was one. A reminder that to be included in God's story of salvation doesn't take perfection or greatness. Only an offering of our crooked lines and an invitation for God to work in and redirect us. Because who knows what will be? The story can be told in any number of ways, but always, always with surprising people, with crooked lines and stuffy hearts turned toward the one who calls us all in never-ending sequence. Abraham was father of Isaac. Isaac was father of Jacob. Jesus called Peter and Paul. Paul called Timothy. Someone called us. The testimony of our lives we might call another. Prayer ends, and now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it.
may this covenant which I have made on earth be ratified in heaven. May it be so. Amen. Friends, let us continue in worship as we sing our next hymn together.